affections of our hearts be always and everywhere acceptable to you. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. You might want to turn, actually, to the reading this morning from the book of Revelation. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests, serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, in the modern post-email world, it is rare to get anything of significance by snail mail. And it's even less common to receive anything where the way that we are addressed and the way that the writer describes himself really matters. In our world, Mother Natalie's and mine, one of the rare exceptions are the notes and cards that we receive from our grandchildren. Anything signed by our grandchildren and addressed to Grandmama and Fritz, my family nickname, signals a set of relationships, identifies our roles, and taps into a history of shared experiences that no other piece of mail can conjure up. Try as they may, there is nothing that I get from a timeshare that can signal what I would call a set of life-defining relationships. But in the ancient world, there were written communications all the time, but they were so rare that words mattered. And when writing to others, people used a series of descriptors to define themselves and the people to whom they wrote. Sometimes, in fact, the language used at the beginning or at the end of a correspondence said as much about what the writer wanted to communicate as anything between the beginning and the end. And that's particularly true of the introduction to the book of Revelation, which we read this morning. The larger book, of course, isn't a letter at all. It is a vision which John the Elder describes for the seven churches under his care that are scattered across Asia Minor. But the vision that he describes would have been read out loud in those churches, and that required an introduction not unlike the ones that we find in Paul's letters to his churches. But because the book of Revelation is a vision or an unveiling, there is also an important difference. John doesn't introduce it as he might if it had been a letter. Instead, he introduces the vision as a word spoken directly to John's churches by Jesus himself. So the way in which John describes Jesus, or the way that Jesus describes himself 
and describes the church is of critical importance in understanding how John understands Jesus, the church, and our relationship with him. Jesus describes himself using three titles. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. They are three separate descriptors, but they are also related to one another. Jesus is the one whose witness to the coming of the kingdom results in his crucifixion. He is the firstborn of the dead at his resurrection, which is also the vindication of his witness. And as a result of his vindication, he is now clearly the ruler of the kings of the earth. You can hear echoes of the same idea in our liturgy. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. There is no political order, no ruler, no social reality, no claims that any human being might make upon us that transcend or outlive the claim made by the resurrected Christ. It's not surprising then to discover that John's introduction of his vision describes Christians as those who are loved, freed from their sins, and have been made a kingdom of priests who serve the living God. His death, the death of Jesus and his resurrection, signal the forgiveness of our sins and our freedom from the power of death. And as members of the body of Christ, we are called to be and to do what Adam and Eve were called to be and to do. To be God's priests, to care for one another and creation, to live into the image of God, and to embody and live in a way that witnesses to the presence and the power of God. To put it another way, we are resurrection people. But what does that look like? What is that all about? Well, John, in the vision or visions that he reports, describes that in vivid detail. But let me summarize John's message in offering three phrases that describe the resurrection life. We are, as Christians, meant to be people who, one, live with freedom. Live with freedom. Two, we are those who witness to the truth. We witness to the truth. And we are three, people who offer hope to the world. Offer hope to the world. Let me explain what I mean by each of those in rather more practical terms. First, we are called to live with freedom. It is really perilously easy to misunderstand what living with freedom means in the Christian tradition. In large part because the concept of freedom has been bastardized and trivialized by countless cultural forces. 
For far too many people, freedom connotes the permission to do what we want, when we want to do it, without regard for others, and without limit. By contrast, the Christian tradition holds that we cannot live with freedom until we are freed from the power of sin. And we cannot practice a form of freedom that is life-giving for ourselves and for others until the love of God orders all of our other loves. And I think this conviction is shaped by a deep psychological and spiritual truth about us. Everyone, you, me, all of us, whether we believe in a God or not, we serve a God. In John's day, the Roman Empire demanded the worship of everyone who lived within the boundaries of its control. The emperor was considered a god. Temples were erected in his honor. And taxes were collected as a form of religious tribute. Labor was marshaled in service of the empire. And those who were conquered were made slaves of the empire. The social and political dynamics of our day differ, but there are multiple forces that are exercised in our world that create a less obvious, but in some ways, even more pervasive force over our lives. We are targeted and defined by advertisers to tell us what we think will make us happy and what will give our lives meaning so that we buy stuff. We are targeted and defined by pundits and politicians who use the social media to define our lives in political categories and enlist us as evangelists for their point of view to the extent that it almost functions as a religious faith. And more recently, we have been told by our culture that we, as human beings, can and do define our lives which is the very definition of sin, the conviction that there is a God and we are it. John's vision, though, reveals that the resurrection has broken the power of these false gods and now makes it possible to live with freedom. If you wonder how to shake the feeling that you are being socialized, recruited, and stampeded into a life that is at odds with the call of God on you, the message of the resurrection is this. Anything, anything, whether it is a role in society, an ideology, or simply the invitation to be your own God, anything that tries to claim your devotion is an imposter. Let the resurrected Christ free you. Second, we as resurrection people are called to witness to the truth. Now this will say something probably not all that good about me, but I've spent a bit of my free time over the last week or so in those brain-dead moments when you've worked your way through the day and you have little else to give, watching the BBC PBS series Rise of the Nazis. Two of the more mesmerizing and frightening episodes are the ones that are devoted to the Hitler Youth. 
capitalizing on the rising popularity of the scouting movement in Britain, the Nazi party stumbled into the power of the movement to shape minds of a younger generation by sending them to camps. At first, they simply mimicked the summer camps that had become popular across Germany and were sponsored by a number of institutions. But it did not take Adolf Hitler long to recognize the power of such camps to capture and shape the minds of young people for a lifetime. So, as the Nazis gained power in Germany, they expanded the camps, outlawed all the others, and eventually made theirs mandatory, leveling criminal charges against the parents who refused to send their children. In 1933, 100,000 boys belonged to these camps and the Hitler Youth. By the end of the year, it had 2 million members between the ages of 10 and 18. By 1937, that membership had swelled to 5.4 million. And by 1940, there were 7.2 million Hitler Youth or 82% of all young people, including girls. What's more frightening, however, is the way in which it swept along multiple generations of children, weakening the influence of parents, churches, and teachers. Those children who became a part of that movement knew no other political or lived reality than Nazism. They knew no other leader than Adolf Hitler. And increasingly, Hitler became not just a political figure, but a father figure. And as a result, they were easily mobilized to betray their parents for anti-patriotic views and eventually to take the place of combatants in the Wehrmacht as Nazi Germany found it difficult to field an army. John saw a similar distortion of truth in his own day. Under the rule of the Roman Empire, it may be hard to imagine that that's possible in our own generation and in a democratic society. But perhaps that's only because those influences don't speak with a single voice. The manipulation of social media has created an environment, even here, even now, in which it is very easy to be drawn into countless smaller realities that trap the minds of people young and old and shape their perceptions of the world around them. This is the age of information. It is in no danger of being the age of wisdom. The resurrected Christ announces the end of every alternative truth that threatens to capture our minds, and he calls us to witness to that truth. Third, as resurrection people, we are called to offer hope to the world. You know, I have a dear friend that I've been talking to on a frequent basis for years now about the Christian life. 
He's a kind, caring man, a loving husband and father. But as he puts it, he says, I find it hard to believe, even though he's gone through periods where he's attended church fairly regularly. He offers a lot of reasons for why he can't believe, but I'm fairly sure that part of it is rooted in the death of one of his sons. Recently, though, he was talking to a neighbor who told him that he needed to believe so that he wouldn't go to hell. And my friend called, wanting to know what I made of his neighbor's reasoning. Tom, I told him, I certainly wouldn't put it that way. I said, for one thing, that happens, what happens to people on the other side of the grave is actually above my pay grade. And I could not possibly claim to know the hearts of other human beings. All I do know is that God is unfailingly loving, merciful, and good. But more to the point, I told him, you need to hear this. The Christian faith is not about eternal fire insurance. What I long for you to have is the gift of peace and hope now. All gifts that come with the promise of the resurrection, the confidence that our lives have meaning, the knowledge that we can live our lives in a way that is open to the voice of God, the God who draws us into lives that are more loving, generous, and wiser than we can imagine, the reassurance that nothing good in our lives is ever lost eternally, and the confidence that we are not lost and those we love are not lost to us on the other side of the grave. That hope, my friends, is the promise of the resurrection life. And that hope is the one out of which we live, and it is the hope that we are called to share. In the world that John lived, hope was in short supply. Life expectancy was short. The peace of Rome was won at the point of a sword. And Christians were regularly martyred for their witness to the truth. In our climate-controlled lives today, in which many of us live at a distance from nature and from human realities, daily reminders of our frailty might be kind of hard to come by. But perhaps COVID-19, inflation, political unrest, and the war in Ukraine has brought a certain amount of reality back to our lives and drawn the curtain back just a bit. If it has, we should pay attention because true security is never possible apart from God. But let me also say this in this Easter season. Fear and despair are imposters as well. And as people of the resurrection, we are called to be just as alert to the peril of living in fear as we are to the imposters that call themselves God 
or invite us to be our own gods. Let us, as people of the resurrection, live with hope. Faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, hear our prayers. By the power of your resurrection, give us that freedom that is only available in you. Lead us into your truth, which endures forever and which penetrates the fog of confusion, disinformation, denial, and deceit. And may our lives be mastered by that hope, which is only found in you. May we be led and strengthened by that hope, emboldened to let it shape our lives, and encouraged to share that hope with others, that together we might rest and rejoice in you, and in the world to come, may we rejoice together in your presence. All this we ask through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reign one God now and forever. Amen.